Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures Podcast. I'm Tal Fortgen. If you've been dialed into recent debates about progressivism, conservatism, religion, and law, you may have identified a disagreement at the core of a few recent arguments. The disagreement is over social norms and socially accepted or acceptable behaviors, and how government can, or should, normatively speaking, try to influence them. This debate has cropped up in various forms across the political spectrum. On the left, the debate is often about political strategy and the role of an elite or judiciary class to set the tone for proper norms and behaviors. For instance, during the 2008 Democratic primary season, both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama subscribed to a particular norm of acceptable opinion. That is, they were opposed to same-sex marriage. When norms shifted, their opinions shifted as well. Once those norms are set, another debate crops up. What happens to those who flout those norms? For more on that topic, I'd encourage all our listeners to go back and listen to the episode we did with Professor Sam Abrams on Glenn Lowry's lecture about self-censorship, which we've linked to below. The political right, meanwhile, has grappled with the resurgent questions of whether and how government can order a nation's laws and customs to a higher good. Which norms government ought to target? how they can or should legitimately do so, and to what end, who's higher good, those are all open questions. And many conservatives, whose first principle of good government is that the state should not engage in social engineering, are made understandably uncomfortable by the whole discussion. Others still insist that statecraft can be soulcraft, government can make men moral, and that liberty without virtue is a republic's undoing. With today's debates in mind, Let's dive into a lecture given in 1996 by University of Chicago law professor Cass Sunstein. Sunstein makes a case that is not recognizably partisan. In fact, it's quite economic in nature. He argues that we can think of social norms as a form of subsidies or taxes on particular behaviors and thoughts. Now a professor at Harvard Law, Sunstein does everything but invoke the Dormant Commerce Clause as he recalls how Americans have changed social norms for some good in the past and how the state may do so again in the future. Here's Cass Sunstein's 1996 lecture, Should Government Change Social Norms? Um, I have three stories uh, for you. They're all true stories. The first is the result of personal experience. I don't know how many of you know the Hamptons on Long Island. My wife and daughter and I spend August on the Hamptons, and there's a place there that used to be called the East Hampton Dump, It's now, not surprisingly, the East Hampton Recycling and Disposal Center. Uh, If you go there in August, um, especially in late August, you'll see uh, a lot of people there. And uh, this isn't a very poor neighborhood, East Hampton. And you'll see people in with, you know, very nice cars and clothes. And uh, what they're doing there is separating their garbage, patiently putting the green glass in the green glass bin and the newspaper in the newspaper bin, and the other paper in the other paper bin, et cetera. It's pretty complicated. If you look at their faces as they're separating their garbage in late August, they look happy. The second story has to do with cigarette smoking. There's been a lot of attention recently to the uh, incidence of smoking among American teenagers. And that, of course, is at the core of President Clinton's uh, current concern with tobacco smoking. Uh, What hasn't received much attention is that there's been a dramatic decrease in cigarette smoking among African-American teenagers. 
That is, the incidence of cigarette smoking among African-American teenagers has pretty much plummeted since uh, the mid-1960s, where among white teenagers, it was pretty st it's been pretty steady, at least in the last 15 years. In fact, it's plummeted so much that it was down to about 4% in 1993 and something like 20% among white teenagers. The Center for Disease Control says we have here an unexplained and, un and not understood public health success story. Uh, I don't have a full account of what's happened with respect to African-American teenagers and smoking, but we might get a clue if we look at subways in Harlem, which have posters in them that have a picture of a white skeleton looking like the Marlboro Man, hovering over an African-American child, and the passage, written passage below the picture says, they used to make us pick it, now they want us to smoke it. Okay, the third story involves a game invented by economists. Uh, economists haven't invented a lot of games, but here's one uh, that they are playing. I've actually had my students play it. The game is called the ultimatum game, and the idea is that uh, there are two people who play, and you're either a proposer or a responder. The pr there's a pot of money. It's $10 and some, some $100, some less, some even more than $100. There's a pot of money that's allocated to the proposer. This isn't very complicated, so it sounds like it's going to be. It isn't. The proposer gets uh, a pot of money, and the proposer can propose to the responder a division of the amount given. If the responder says, okay, then they both keep the relevant amounts. If the responder says no, then the total amount goes back to the instructor. It's called the ultimatum game because there's no bargaining. It's a one-shot proposal and a yes or no. Now, out of a $10 pot, the economist's proposition is that the proposer ought as a rational, self-interested person, to propose that $9.75 stay with him and that a quarter goes to the responder. And the economist proposes that the responder ought to say an enthusiastic yes to that offer, both acting in self-interested fashion. Uh, what would you expect to be observed? What is observed is that often proposals that are offer less than a 50-50 division are refused, that it's rare for proposers to propose less than a 70-30 division, and it's rare for responders to, to accept more than something like a 70-30 division. So systematically, proposers are fairer than would be ex anticipated by economic theory, and responders are more um, prickly than would be expected by economic theory. Uh, I did play this at the University of Chicago Law School, and we got the normal results. Uh, there were some violations where we had enthusiastic yes responses by responders to uh, weirdly unfair divisions and proposers who were very self-interested and greedy. It turned out these people were all economics majors. <laughs> These three stories are about social norms, and my topic is social norms and the relationship between existing ones and the United States government. Uh, the motivation is partly practical. If you look at the preventable risks of death in the United States, 400,000 are from tobacco smoking, 300,000 are from inadequate diet and exercise, 
100,000 are from abuse of alcohol, and another 100,000, and it's on the rise, is a result of firearms, unsafe sexual behavior, and the use of illicit drugs. It shouldn't be controversial to suggest that in all of these contexts, an underlying contributor to the problem is norms that are producing uh, bad results. So that's the practical motivation. We might think of social norms as taxes on or subsidies to choice, where, for example, people might smoke because they are subsidized by existing norms in their choice to do that. And now, increasingly, the choice to smoke is taxed by existing social norms. There are communities in which to carry a gun is easily subsidized by existing norms, substantially subsidized and communities like, I'm proud to say, my own, in which carrying a gun not only would be a pretty ridiculous and odd thing to do, it is also taxed by social norms. You'd be perceived as a strange person. An additional claim is that existing social states are more fragile than they seem, partly because what people want is a function of what other people are perceived to want. And once our perceptions of other people's desires shift, we can get cascade or bandwagon effects. I think we've seen something like this with respect to both the fall of communism and the attack on affirmative action, where put to one side what you think of that attack, it's no doubt the case that the attack on affirmative action has been a kind of cascade or bandwagon, partly because social norms have shifted with respect to the legitimacy of criticizing affirmative action. And once the norm has shifted, than the, uh, the expression shifts as well. Uh, my claim about the legitimate role of government is that there is room for government to do something about norms that people don't like but obey, and that predictably lead to shorter or worse lives. The reason there's room for governmental action is most simply that people face a collective action problem in changing social norms. To shift a social norm with respect to uh, revenge behavior or with respect to smoking is exceedingly difficult on one's own. In order to get the change, we need to act collectively. Sometimes we can privately, sometimes public action is the only way to do it. And in the case like that, the objection from freedom to governmental meddling with people's choices or preferences, government action designed to shift social norms is legitimate when it's designed to promote human autonomy or well-being at least in cases when people act as they do because of the reputational consequences of not acting that way. That is, the suggestion is our behavior is frequently a product of the reputational consequences of saying or doing something. And when the reason we say or do what we do is fear of adverse reputational consequences, at least it's possible that governmental changes in reputational consequences will promote both autonomy and well-being. Maybe a simple way to make this point is that we want to ensure that people are autonomous or free, not only to satisfy their preferences, but also to form their preferences. And sometimes social conditions allow us to satisfy our preferences, again, in the obscure term, but they don't allow us to, fr to form our preferences freely or autonomously. Think, for example, of someone who uses drugs not because he really wants to, but because there's a high reputational cost of not doing so in his community. Okay, I have three concepts, really, and they're all simple. The main one is the notion of social norms, 
and the other two are social roles and social meanings. They're really derivative from the notion of social norms. By social norms, I mean social attitudes of approval or disapproval, as captured in the notion it isn't done, a notion invoked when frequently the relevant thing is done, and what's sought by the term is to prevent its frequent occurrence. There are social norms about a wide range of things, when and how to show affection, how to dress, when and how to be angry, when to talk, when to listen, when to smoke, when to buy insurance, and just about everything else. A key fact about social norms is that they are not within the control of the individual agent, that particular people haven't generated social norms by which they live. Now, there are many consequences from the existence of social norms conditioning both uh, talk and behavior. One thing they tend to do is to drive a wedge between people's public talk and action and their private beliefs about appropriate talk and action. So, for example, up until recently in Hungary, people didn't buckle their seatbelts in a taxi cab because there was a social norm in accordance with which to buckle your seatbelt was to accuse the driver of um, hazardous driving. And in that case, people privately often would like to buckle their seatbelts, but didn't because of the norm in accordance with which buckling was a kind of accusation. There is a wedge driven between public and private behavior, certainly with respect to both smoking and discriminating. It works in various ways. There are communities in which people don't discriminate on grounds of race or gender because there's a social norm in accordance with which that is very bad. And there are communities in which people do discriminate on the basis of race and gender because there's a norm in accordance with which discrimination is very good. There's an interesting um, kind of not much talked about aspect of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 where some of the uh, southern restaurants and hotels actually sought a prohibition on their own discriminatory behavior. It's a kind of puzzle from the standpoint of public choice theory. What were they doing supporting a ban on their own behavior? Well, one account that some of them give is that they were discriminating, but they didn't really want to. They wanted to make money, and the way to make money was by being race neutral. They discriminated because there is a powerful norm against discriminatory against non-discriminatory behavior, and what they wanted was the shielding effect of the law to enable them to do what, in fact, they wanted to do. Both reputational costs and self-conception costs are a function of social norms. That is, the effects of our behavior on our self-conception and on our reputation is uh, a consequence of the subsidy or tax effects of existing social norms. Okay, that's the master concept, social norms. Each of us occupies a range of social roles. We may be you know, a spouse, an employee, uh, an automobile driver, uh, a customer, a citizen, and more. And each of our social roles is accompanied by a network of social norms. It is remarkable the extent to which these social norms are internalized by each of us acting within our social role. If you, for example, treated a waiter like you treat a police officer. Very strange behavior, and the waiter would be puzzled. If you treated a police officer like you treat an employee, the police officer might find that disrespectful or puzzling. 
each social role is accompanied by a wide range of norms, and some of those norms have legal sources. That is, some of the norms that govern roles are legally determined. There's a network of norms governing consumer behavior, which is just different from the network of norms that governs citizenship behavior. So it may be that in our capacity as consumers, partly perhaps because of the collective action problem, we may not pay attention to altruistic or justice-regarding values that in our, our capacity as citizens we uh, hold dear. And it is, I think, not a function of hypocrisy, but just of prevailing norms that people in their consumption behavior often make choices, which they urge there ought to be laws against in their behavior as citizens. This isn't hypocrisy, it's a reflection of different norms in the different contexts. Okay, with respect to actions, there are social meanings too. If I were to light up a cigarette here, my guess is that would be thought to be either an effort to exemplify the thesis or um, a rebellious act of some kind. Whereas 20 years ago, it might be an effort to exemplify the thesis too, but it wouldn't be a rebellious act of any kind. Right now, for a non-smoker to ask a smoker, please don't smoke, is to act, uh, is not to have the meaning of discourtesy or prudery or anything of the sort. It's perfectly conventional. Whereas 20 years ago, I don't know if you can remember this. Um, you look like you should be able to. I do. My mother was a smoker. For someone to ask a smoker not to smoke, that signaled a kind of, um, you know, prudishness or fanaticism. Um, often, social norms are more fragile than they seem. Because what people do and say is a product of their beliefs about other people's judgments, and once those beliefs start to shift, surprisingly rapid change can occur. A Hungarian said in 1990, I think, a year ago you couldn't find anyone saying anything bad about communism. Now you can't find anyone saying anything good about communism. The astonishingly rapid and mostly nonviolent fall of both communism and apartheid, I suggest, was a product of kind of cascade and bandwagon effects where people were silenced by their conception of prevailing social norms. And once that started to shift, the conception started to shift, we had a kind of very rapid bandwagon and then a tipping point. So that criticism of communism, first heavily taxed by existing social norms, then became heavily subsidized by existing social norms. And when we have very rapid, large-scale social change, it often has much less to do with the coercive effects of government action and much more to do with kind of uh, modelable changes with respect to social norms. A very interesting category of people in this context are what we might call norm entrepreneurs. And you can think of them as including William Bennett, Louis Farrakhan, Judge Bork, and Catherine McKinnon, each of whom, Judge Bork of the most recent book, that is. Um, the, uh, all four of those people are norm entrepreneurs in the sense that what they're doing is signaling the existence of prevailing norms with which they sharply disagree and trying to overcome a collective action problem faced by individuals by lowering the costs or, or uh, increasing the benefits of departure from existing social norms. And each of those people, well, it was maybe too early to tell with respect to Judge Bork, the book's been out too recently. The other three, 
Bennett, Farrakhan, and McKinnon have had a fair degree of success, partly because they've taken advantage of the collective action problem, where people have been living in accordance with norms, uh, which on reflection they reject. Sexual harassment is an extremely vivid example of this, where um, behavior that was not taxed and perhaps subsidized 25 years ago, that is harassing behavior, now produces extremely high norm costs. And there's been a tipping point and a very dramatic shift, and uh, accordingly, shifts in behavior. I don't think I want to spend a lot of time on some technical results in economics, um, but I'll just tell you a little bit about them. Often, economists have found in experimental and real-world situations um, high levels of cooperation because people are talking to one another or because people are getting to know one another a little bit. That is, prisoners' dilemmas and non-cooperative action often can be overcome when people have had a little bit of contact with one another. It suggests that there's a kind of contagion or, or infectious quality to norms of cooperation under circumstances in which people aren't entirely strangers. These are said to be anomalies from the standpoint of rational choice theory. But if you think to yourself that what it's rational to do depends partly on the social costs and benefits of action, that shouldn't be surprising then it shouldn't be anomalous at all to find cooperation in circumstances in which uh, norms emerge that punish non-cooperative behavior. And many of the puzzles that economists have been struggling with over the past 10 years are not really puzzles of rationality. They're cases in which norms of cooperation are coming to the fore. I've suggested that the notion of choice and preference are harder to use for purposes of anti-paternalism once we attend to social norms. Let me say just a little bit about that. The notion of preferences as it's used by economists is ambiguous as between choices and wellsprings of choices. Sometimes what economists mean by preferences is actual choices. That's Samuelson's notion of the revealed preference. But if we use the revealed preference as kind of a foundation for social policy, we might think that there are problems when people's choices are an artifact of norms which they wish were different. So in a case in which a restaurant is discriminating or a person is approving in talk and behavior of affirmative action as a result of norms that that person rejects, the notion that we ought to respect that preference understood as choice runs into difficulty. The person wishes that the choice or preference could be different, but takes the norm as uh, decisive for a decision. Sometimes the notion of preference doesn't refer to choice, but instead refers to the wellspring of choice. Gary Becker, University of Chicago's Nobel Prize winner, rejects Samuelson's notion of the revealed preference and speaks instead of what underlies choices. What are the motivations for choices? That's what preferences refer to. But if we ask ourselves about the motivations for choices and what it means to respect that set of things called preferences, I think we'll rapidly run into conceptual problems. The wellsprings of choices are multiple. When people use drugs or engage in unsafe sex or take school seriously or not, there's a range of underpinnings of those choices. There isn't a thing called preference that underlies those choices. There's not a physical entity. 
nor is there a mental entity that's very easily used. The wellsprings of a choice to, let's say, say, take school seriously or not to get pregnant are extremely diverse. One of the things that's included in that thing called the preference is the reputational consequence of the choice. And since the reputational consequence depends on social norms, what it means whether we should respect this thing called preferences might seem very problematic. I hope that's clear. That's clear. If people's choices are a function of a set of things, let's call it intrinsic value, reputational value, and self-conception value, and if the latter two depend on norms which people live in accordance with but on reflection reject, what's left to the anti-paternalist case? If government wants to do something about existing social norms, it has a hierarchy of tools. And as kind of good liberals in the sense of the liberal political tradition, let's start with the less intrusive and describe the hierarchy and prefer the less intrusive. The first is information, where we often see information-induced norm cascades. With respect to smoking, that's a good candidate. And with respect to diet and exercise, that's very possible. So the first and least controversial thing the government might try to do is just provide information. The second is to attempt to persuade, not simply to provide facts, but also to encourage behavior on the theory that it needs to inculcate new and better norms. The government might try to counteract norm subsidies or norm taxes through taxes or subsidies of its own. So the government might use financial incentives through, for example, a cigarette tax as a way of counteracting, let's suppose, uh, bad norms. Last, the government might uh, coerce, as in the case of a mandatory seatbelt law, uh, prohibition on the use of dangerous drugs, and so forth. Okay, so that's the hierarchy. Now, let me conclude uh, by saying something about categories of cases in which government action, I suggest, is justified once we attend to the liberty-denying effects of norms by which people live and in which people have, uh, and for which people have little enthusiasm. The clearest case are those in which we have existing norms that fail to solve collective action problems or that create collective action problems. That is where we have norms of non-cooperation in cases in which people don't cooperate giving, given existing norms, but they'd much rather they had prevailing norms which would enable them to cooperate with one another. There's an odd set of laws that I think pick up on precisely this problem. They are kind of odd laws that have a signaling effect, but they're extremely infrequently enforced. I have a dog, a German Shepherd, and so I notice the fact that there is a law in the city of Chicago requiring people to clean up after their dogs. The existence of the law signals a kind of social judgment about the need for cooperation rather than non-cooperation, but the law is just about never enforced. The dog poop law has helped play a role in an extraordinary norm cascade where behavior 25 years ago, cleaning up after your dog, that would have seemed somewhat sick, is now very conventional and that's all to the good. With respect to seatbelt buckling, we have a similar phenomenon where the rate of seatbelt buckling up until 1980 or so was about 11%, and government's educational campaigns didn't do much. 
What seemed to induce very dramatic increases in seatbelt buckling was the enactment of laws that uh, had a signaling effect, even though those laws were very infrequently enforced. To the extent where we have extremely dramatically different social norms with respect to seatbelt buckling in many communities now from what we had 20 years ago, where for many people not to buckle is uh, intrinsically less costly because we're in the habit and the reputational cost of not buckling is often um, high, it looks strange, and your self-conception value isn't very high. There's an issue right now that uh, needs some attention. Um, the issue with respect to airbags exploding on children in the front seat and killing them. Uh, one possibility is that the government will get rid of the airbag law, even though probably my understanding is the aggregate data suggests the airbag law is good. Maybe not. You might think that parents really ought to have their young children in the back seat for various safety reasons. Let's just posit that. It may not be true as a matter of fact. If it's so, it would be very good to inculcate a norm that would, um, that would produce uh, that change in behavior. Okay, what I'm referring to now is cases in which people want norms to be different from what they are. They act in accordance with them, given what they are. They can't change them without collective action, and they want that. And the way to do it is, the best way to, or the cheapest way to do it is governmental. That, I think, is the easiest uh, set of cases. A somewhat harder set of cases involve instances in which people engage in risk-creating behavior, not because of the intrinsic value of the behavior, but because of the reputational costs of not engaging in the behavior. Here, examples include carrying guns, smoking cigarettes, drinking too much, and engaging in unsafe sex. Unsafe, let's say, because of the risk of venereal disease or because of the risk of pregnancy. There are many Americans who engage in all of these forms of behavior, not because of the intrinsic value of doing so, but because of the reputational costs of not doing so. And in cases of that sort, to say that we should respect people's choices or preferences is, I suggest, uh, unresponsive to the nature of the problem, where risky behavior is produced not because of intrinsic value, but because of reputational cost. There's an additional and related problem to that in which people engage in risk-creating behavior because of reputational incentives. And that is in cases in which people's autonomy is at risk because of reputational incentives. And I'm thinking here of the problem of Americans who don't get educated or otherwise autonomous because to do that imposes reputational, a reputational price. There are many communities uh, in which people who take schooling seriously face a reputational cost, and that's why they don't. There are some communities where um, to go to law school imposes a kind of reputational cost not that high, and it can be overcome by countervailing values, and that's not the most serious problem facing America, the reputational cost of going to law school. But education is a very serious problem. With respect to women and education or uh, workplace involvement, there are many contexts more outside of America than in America, but in America too where for women to take education and employment seriously is for religious or other reasons to incur a very severe reputational price.
in many countries other than the United States for women to get literate is to risk their um, reputation in very severe ways, and for that reason they don't. There are caste systems all over the world, and the United States has some aspects of caste systems in the sense that some people's skin color or gender or disability has a kind of signaling effect, a signaling effect which is connected with the social norm or social meaning of having that gender or skin color. Now, one way to think about anti-discrimination law is that it's designed to overcome the signaling effect of the relevant, highly visible characteristic. Whether or not it works very well, there's no objection from the standpoint of liberty. Where caste membership is a problem from the standpoint of freedom or autonomy, and when that can't be changed without legal activity. Much progress in social science might be made by using something more fine-grained and differentiated than the notion of preference as the engine of modeling. Gary Becker's most recent book, it's called Accounting for Tastes, actually makes movement in this direction. So it's revealing that our number one preference, czar, is in this capacity as social science apparently much less satisfied with using that notion as foundational. He's aware of the fact that people's preferences are an artifact of things, and if we want to do social science as well, we may as well get to those things rather than talking about the preferences. On the normative side, it is said often, every day, that we should respect people's choices and their preferences. But if what I've said is correct, preferences and choices are an artifact of things, including existing social norms, social meanings, and social roles. And these are things for which people in their individual capacity aren't responsible. Norms, roles, and meanings can be an obstacle to human autonomy and well-being. Now, it should be unnecessary to say that there are private norm communities that can fulfill some of the freedom-promoting and well-being-promoting functions that government might promote. And private norm communities are extremely important in a diverse society. It should also be unnecessary to say that government action might be futile or counterproductive or invasive of rights or motivated by self-interested private groups with their own agendas. All of that is undoubtedly true. But those questions can be resolved only by reference to the details. My suggestion here is that efforts by government to change social norms in the interest of freedom or well-being ought not to be foreclosed by reference to slogans or mantras about the need to respect choice. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyndon and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI senior fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.